One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. All right, welcome back to another quarantine episode of Film Chat here. Sort of semi-quarantine now, though on the verge of uh, the second full quarantine. So no no need to abandon that uh, little quarantine lockdown jingle. It remains relevant. Joined as always by Danny. How, how are you doing, Danny? I'm well... Um, I did think of you recently, Sam, because a couple of days ago it was announced there's going to be no Marvel films this year. Complete, they're shifting everything to 2021, and my mind immediately went to you and like, "Are you okay? How you doing?" I know you were like torn up when Black Widow was postponed. You're like, "Oh, I'll be at the end of the year. That'll keep me going." But it's now 2021, so I mean, are you okay? How you doing? I think I think uh, the reality of coronavirus only truly hit home. <laughs> when I saw that there wasn't going to be any Marvel films this year, when we've been on a on a streak of multiple Marvel films per year since 2008, and I was like, wow, life is not normal anymore. It, it's probably the biggest single disruption to, my, to the normality of my life. And uh, yeah, of course, it's hugely, it's hugely challenging. So I've been... Um, Sticking on all my all my faves, all the all my all my favorite uh, my super superhero films. Sticking them all on, sticking them all on at once, just basking and trying <laughs> to trying to reclaim a bit of that sense of uh, sense of normalcy that we're, that we're missing. Can't believe I didn't get to see Black Widow in action. She's gonna you know uh, fight some Russians or whatever, be a Russian, fight some Russians, that kind of thing. And uh, we're missing out on it. Very sad. I never saw, but but I, but I did watch the trailer for One Division. You see that? Yeah, like it's a 50s it's pretty wacky. sitcom, but it's not, I don't know, sure. I'm guessing that the 60s plus 80s plus 90s or whatever little trip through sitcom history, my guess would be that, that, that reset, like, that's like episode one or like maybe a montage at the beginning and then the show is just is something completely different after that. Like, after that. But, um, but if it is just mostly kind of throwback sitcom stuff, that would be kind of fun. I would enjoy that. I mean... I think it's, it says something about how this genre has just continued to go, that they just, they're just doing anything now, right? Before, remember, like, you know, in the first X-Men movie, they're all wearing, like, black leather, and he's like, what do you expect, spandex? And now, like, you watch the Wonder Woman trailer, and, like, Kristen Wiig turns into, like, a massive cat, and you're like, sure, whatever, that's a film. <laughs> like, just people's yeah. imaginations are willing to go wherever. It's like, yeah, why not, 50s. It's sitcom. a great improvement, honestly. I think that uh, that kind of squeamishness about comic book absurdity is... Uh, completely dissipated and that can only be for the good you know i think if you watch the original x-men movie now it just seems silly that they're in these kind of tactical uh, all black combat suits like you know because back then coolness was like the matrix right so if you're if everyone's not in all black that that's incredibly uncool if you're wearing colorful costumes that's lame whereas now yeah christian wig turns into a cheetah aquaman is like riding a giant crab or you know cats and dogs living together mass hysteria got to be an improvement don't know if don't know if wonder woman 1984 is going to be good but none of us need to find out for for a long time yeah <laughs> if if half the fun of the cinema is anticipation then this is going to be one of the best years for movies of all time right yeah i mean how were you really like looking forward to the eternals but now that's just doubles in anticipation you're like you saw uh, <laughs> that guy from the big sick he's got like jacked for some reason and kumail uh, nanjani yeah he's he's really not 
got the correct body for the roles in which he's normally cast, I think. Do you think this is going to be like an even worse version of Chris Pratt? Because like, he wasn't even funny before. And now he's not funny and jacked. So he's going to lose whatever he had before. I think it was a bad career move from this is guy. Is this just like a side effect of living in LA or something? You just have to... You just get, you get all that sun and like you, every salad you order has got a protein shake mixed into it and everyone around you is just has abs coming out of every part of their body and you're just like... You know, I, I must immediately get a combination of cosmetic surgery and, you know, 18 hours a day in the gym or, or I won't I won't be cast in any role on TV. It's pretty strange to me. Why is this the cute uh, bookish, you know, normal guy, the Hugh Grant type, whatever, is now got a sort of Greek god body. Doesn't doesn't scan at all to me. I can't yeah. relate to that. He can't really be an underdog in a film if he can, like, tear a man's head clean off, you know? Yeah. Which is how he looks. So, um... What uh, what have you been watching lately, Danny? What's been on uh, what your menu, your cinema menu? What I've been watching, uh, movie wise, I've watched a lot of like TV, but movie wise, I've watched the new Charlie Kaufman. I've watched Bill and Ted Face the Music. Uh, I watched Synecdoche, New York again. I watch it like every five years. Every time there's like a new Kaufman movie out, I was like, I've not quite understood that film, and I watch it again. I'm like, I feel like I'm edging closer to sort of getting it, but <laughs> still have some misgivings about it. It might be a masterpiece. It's just got so much like metaphors in it. Every there's so much meaning in that film. It's almost like it kind of drowns in it. And every time I just get, though? I kind of like swim a bit closer to it. Well, yeah. you know, it's the well. We'll on have your... it. We can have. Yeah, yeah. I'm looking forward to us uh, chatting about Kaufman. I haven't. I haven't revisited uh, uh, any Kaufman, although I have seen the new one, and uh, and I, I definitely developed some misgivings after Anomalisa, and I didn't like Synecdoche in New York as much as like it seemed like most other people did, and then I saw the trailer for his new one, and it just looked like it was going to be the real the real clincher for me on the, Kaufman's whole deal, and um, and it was, <laughs> and it was. definitely. Well, it kind of was because it's definitely a continuation of what he's been doing in his recent movies, which is basically like um, uh, moving increasingly away from sort of mainstream-ish quirky fare with a sort of fun gimmick and that's like more comedy driven and, you know, that kind of thing, Um, like being John Malkovich or Eternal Sunshine of Spotless Mind uh, into like self-directed projects, which are like very existential and philosophical. and uh yeah so so it's definitely going to be going to be fun to talk about Kaufman um but uh why don't you tell us a little bit about the the Bill and Ted the latest Bill and Ted movie old Bill old Ted old Bill old Ted so the premise is they were supposed to write the song that saved humanity in the first two movies and then the second film seems to suggest that they did but being in this film you discover that song was just like a number one hit for like a week and then they plummeted in the charts and over 25 years they've released a series of like less and less well-received albums and they've failed to write the song that we get unite humanity but the universe is unraveling or collapsing in on itself and they have to get it done by a arbitrary timeline of like 717 that day and so they travel in their own timeline to the future where they've written the song already to try and steal it so they can play it and save the world meanwhile their uh, kids uh, they've got two daughters, a daughter each from the uh, marriages to the bodacious English babes from the first uh, movies, uh, are also trying to help out their dads. And they're very willingly played by uh, Samara Weaving and Bridget Lundy-Payne. Uh, here's a clip. Greetings, my excellent friends. Do we know you? I'm Kelly. Wait, you're Rufus's daughter. I am, and I've been wanting to meet you my whole life. It must be very disappointing. Not at all. We have a problem, gentlemen. Potentially a very serious problem. About the music? About the music. They just want to talk to you. <laughs> Dude, I got a very bad feeling about this. It'll be fine, Ted. They totally love us in the future, dude. They're totally in trouble. I feel so bad for them. They've been doing this on their own for the longest time. Yeah, I wish there was some way we could help them out, you know? Yeah. But how? So, I thought this was, like, okay. It came out and got, like, quite good reviews. But it feels a bit, like, thrown together. 
and kind of for the fans it sort of like follows the sort of basically identical plot of the previous two movies and it's sort of there's a bit of fan service but I think it just felt a bit Netflixy in that it felt a bit kind of like cheap and like overlit it didn't have wasn't as well directed as the previous two films there was like a lack of like atmosphere to it and this might be like a really weird like petty remark but like in the first movie when like the sort of time traveling phone box turns up and like it's George Carlin. It's like, it's at night and there's like lightning and, you know, it's a bit of that kind of Ghostbusters thing of like, you know, things go a bit weird. Then there's like the sort of sci-fi element, which I think is a real hallmark of like 80s cinema is like kind of dumb ideas, but really well executed. But then in this one, it's just like in the middle of the day and it just all like appears and they've like CGI this thing. And it feels a bit like there's too much green screen. There's not enough weight to it which, which is maybe is a, a weird complaint for such a sort of flimsy movie where it's basically just two guys going dude bro uh but i felt it lacked a bit of the same kind of care of as the first two movies they the central two guys are still very charming and the joke is like even funnier the older they get they're just very nice guys trying to be excellent to each other they've they've married like the first woman who ever kissed them and had kids it's like it's quite a conservative like almost like christian or something despite being rock stars and I thought the daughters were great. They're both doing like brilliant sort of half impressions, half their own things of like their dad's performances. Like the woman playing young Keanu Reeves has really got his like slightly wooden mannerisms down in a way that's very funny. Um, but it just doesn't quite... It's almost like for a movie this flimsy, it's almost like why doesn't it work better than it should? You know, like it's got quite a low bar to clear. So I was a little bit sort of, it's kind of like fine, it's not embarrassing, but it's definitely the worst of the three. And I felt like they didn't, they didn't do enough with the concept. Like, when you have all of time and space to play with, it should be, they didn't push the concept as much as they did in the first two movies. It felt like they were like keen to wrap it all up. It also feels like it's been edited a lot. There's like a sort of very unnecessary voiceover at the start and the end. Like a sort of a now the movie's over and it's like, I know it was over, like the plot concluded. Obviously, this tested badly at some point, and there was some confusion. So, it's got that going for it. I don't know. You think it should have been? You think it should have had uh, more of the uh, Rick and Morty type thing of um, wacky, enormous concepts? Yeah. Well, the first one definitely has that, like where they sort of double down on the time travel a lot. And the, I don't know. Like, it has a nice ending. I think the way, like, it's quite sentimental in a way that feels quite earned. Because they're such sort of like lovable dudes, you kind of just wish them well, and it's quite nice to have a movie where it's about, like, fathers and their daughters. I think that's quite rare. It's usually, like, every screenwriter has some dad issues. Father-daughter movies are normally um, those middle-aged action movies where they've got to rescue the daughter, like Taken or yeah. the mid-career Harrison Ford movies. Yeah, exactly. So it was quite nice that, like, they're in the movie and they're very, like, important to the kind of structure. And the sort of finale is well-judged. Um, they have, like... Kid Cuddy's in it a lot. I don't know why. Is he, like, big? Is he famous? I know he's sort of famous, but, like, not enough that it's, like, a deal that he's in a film. You know what I mean? It's not, like... He's not famous enough that it's a notable cameo. It's more like that he seems like someone you could 100% afford to be in a film. Maybe maybe not Maybe not to less so to a British audience. I don't know. I'm familiar that Kid Cuddy is uh, famous, but I, I don't really know his work. It's quite funny that, like, they form, like, a super group with, like, Mozart and Jimi Hendrix and like Louis Armstrong and also like Kid Cudi just turns up and he's like, he's not as good, is he? Like, I don't know. He's not like a great actor. There's like a joke where he's like really knows a lot about quantum physics, but it's, I don't know if he hasn't got, the, hasn't got the timing really to quite pull off his lines. But it was, it was fine, I would say. Not an embarrassment. If you're up for like a nostalgia trip, it's okay. But it's, it's how very... much How, how much uh, mileage are you getting out of this if you've not seen the first two Bill and Ted films? I mean, it might be better that way because some of the jokes are the same. I would say it's an unnecessary but not embarrassing threequel. My favourite film stars Bridget Bardo. She's the queen and she wants to be in radio. So she starts a podcast with her friends and the terrorists try to stop her but she beats them in the end. On to Light Affair. I'm thinking of Ending Things, the new uh, film from Charlie Kaufman. It's based on a book from 2016 um, of the same name by an uh, author called Ian Reid. And it stars Jessie Buckley as the sort of central young woman. 
um, who gets uh, various names throughout, and uh, Jesse Plemons as Jake, her boyfriend, and it mainly concerns them driving to his parents' farm to to meet them in the like early months of a relationship. And she explains in voiceover at the beginning that she feels pretty uncertain about where the relationship is heading and says that she's thinking of ending things. Uh, they get there. The parents are very strange, played by Tony Collette as the mother and David Thewlis as the father. And things gradually spiral out and become increasingly more surreal. And it seems like everything is a symbol for something or it's a dream or it's not really happening. Uh, it goes like that. It gets gets weird and wacky. I mean, they're pretty, but I don't see how it's supposed to make me feel something if there's not a person in them feeling something, if there's not a person in them feeling sad or joyous or whatever other emotion you said. Well, maybe think of yourself as the person looking out at the scene. Well, I'd have to see me in them. Well, if you were there, you wouldn't see yourself, right? Well, I would if I looked down. I'm not a ghost. Danny, do you want to do you want to kick us off? Because you've you've uh, revisited uh, Kaufman in more detail than I have recently. You know, watch Synecdoche and stuff, and uh, <laughs> and maybe like him a little more than I do. So, um, do you want to yeah give us your take? Sure. I mean, it's going to be hard to talk about because like there's. The kind of conceit of the film is the kind of point, and it's also a spoiler. Um, but how do I start? How do I even begin to explain what I think about this movie? It's so deep. It's operating so many levels. I like uh, the thing I like about Kaufman is that he kind of really his whole thing is sort of about trying to work out the inside of his head. And like as you were saying, there used to be like it's like a sort of it was ameliorated his like darker themes by being a bit quirky or like there was a sort of fun gimmick to it. Gimmick if you hate his movies, brilliant conceit if you think he's a genius. Uh, but the ones he's directed are like, the, the trilogy is like man cannot escape his own brain, basically. Like the overanalyzing of things will just destroy you. Um, and I don't know, I think basically the conceit it was doing, I don't sure, uh, this is going to be hard to talk about, but... I basically was, a, when I figured out what the film was doing, it's, it's kind of this weird road movie where you're not sure exactly what's going on. It sort of has the feel of what could be a horror film in that, like, as similar to Synecdoche, New York, it's like, there's just like this sort of air of strangeness to it. Like, because I watched it recently, there's a bit where, like, Samantha Morton's like, I just had twins, Charles, Rob, and Danny or something. And it's like, she names three kids, but just says twins. It's like stuff like this, like this weird, everything's a bit off kilter. And I was sort of going with it, and then it gets weirder and weirder. Has this very strange beguiling tone, I thought. And then, when sort of like two thirds of the way in, I didn't really know what was going on. I was like borderline, like a bit frustrated with it. And then I sort of, you could, I think it sort of gives enough clues that you know what it's doing. Uh, the sort of what the whole thing is actually about. It's, oh, God, can I speak about this in more, like, vague terms? Well, we can like, do... We can fully do a spoiler. We can definitely do a spoiler section so we can talk about the movie in more detail. I think that would be fine. Like Basically, I kind of... I got what the film was doing and I kind of liked it a lot more. And I thought the way it basically painted the inside of somebody's head, so dramatised a very internal thing, was successful. That was its main aim and it did it. And I think it managed to balance... Uh, similar to Synecdoche, New York, where, like, the main character isn't very sympathetic, but also you have kind of great pathos for him. I think, like, he's kind of understandable. It's like, on one hand, he makes movies which are, like, typical, like, men who view everything in their life as, like, a prop for their own misery. But then it sort of takes that... It definitely has the view that that is, like, pathetic. But then, I think, but by the end... You're like, it's so tragic. I don't know. I, I kind of really... It lingered with me, this movie. Did I just... Did any of that make any sense? I, I don't know. Like, I also thought, like, on a, you know, remove all the existential themes of it. It's just like, all this movie seemed like extreme acting challenges for its cast. And I thought Jesse Buckley, all the characters are basically, the half characters, half concepts. And they managed to imbue... Even though there's no consistency to any of their like character traits, they all manage to sort of like make that work. Like I don't know how you go even begin to approach your character, which like changes every like six lines. But that was like really compelling. And also, there's something about this. It's something quite daring. It's like a sort of chamber piece drama. It's like four locations, like very dense, possibly too long. 
but I felt like the performances and the sort of uneasiness of the way it's shot like was enough to keep me interested and then the reveal of what was happening I sort of like oh it, the movie kind of opened up to me but then I don't know if that's just the trick of the film in a way like I like it because I got it by the end like I feel like clever now that I've understood what they were going for you obfuscated what it meant for the first half and then you revealed it and I'm just you know you're flattering my ego by me noticing the one thing you've done but it, I, I don't know I saw it a couple of weeks ago and I think it, there's definitely something to it like I think maybe I like the ambition of it more than the film itself. But I'd definitely revisit it. But maybe that's the Kaufman thing. Is he a genius or has he just tricked me? I don't know. For me, the, the best part of the movie was the, the central two performances, which I think did went a long, long way to make it, making it watchable, especially in some of the like more talky, slow sequences. Each of the scenes in the film is pretty long individually. Two of them just take place in the car, which is at traveling in, largely in the dark for a lot of the time and it just has snow and you don't really see anything except the main two actors and it feels very it's a lot like watching a play i think in which scenes tend to be longer than in movies um and uh they do a lot of just uh chatting about uh life and it's very philosophical and it's full of cultural references they talk about different thinkers and uh and i think that the it's the it's the performances of Jesse Plemons and especially Jesse Buckley, who I thought was really, really fantastic in it, um, that uh, keep that stuff engaging because they, while the film itself is uh, somewhat loose or confusing and you know not tethered to normal dramatic coherences that enable you to like loop you into the story, um, they felt like they really knew what they were doing, you know, and I think that that carries you along. Uh, uh, quite quite effectively um i i do have some misgivings about kaufman i think i just find his whole thing a little annoying i, I don't <laughs> or like the two different aspects to to kaufman that i don't really like uh he's got a like a very clear kind of worldview that comes across in his uh in his movies and i don't think that i subscribe to it so i think that's one kind of jarring thing is that his movies like the last few which are um, as you, I think man in their own head movies is a really good way to um, to put it because he's basically creating these like huge external worlds that only exist that, that are all about the interiority you know yeah and that's even something which is stated pretty explicitly in this film in one of many like things that is slightly winking at you where they literally talk about landscapes and how they um, even though you can't see the person looking out at them, the world around you you know can express a mood or or a thought or a feeling or whatever and that's what these films are doing you know and i think that like he's kind of reaching for a sort of universality in it at least i feel that he is that it's not just about the exploration of an individual psyche and their own like fears and you know difficulties but is also a comment on the human condition itself in certain ways and that his kind of message about the human experience is not one that really chimes with me. And, and specifically the thing that I, that I um, bounce off of with, with that is there is a, there's this kind of misanthropy which expresses itself through seeing a lot of everyday forms of human communication and relationship as kind of fake or superficial and that the anxieties and fears that you have inside are more true and real i think there's like that that i you know maybe that's not what everyone is getting from these movies but that is certainly something that i feel comes from them that he is kind of saying that like when you are you know awkwardly trying to communicate with your friends or family or you know uh or just passing the time or you know like whatever going about your day that it's kind of like a fake screen or that sort of bullshit and then like when you chip all that away you you you're left with like disease the aging the fear of death and you know all of these like deeper kind of fears and like grand concepts and stuff and that that is a kind of more true reflection of the of like the essence of being human um and i don't i just don't really subscribe to that view there isn't i think there's an element in it of that this sort of anxious person who's 
uh, worried and afraid and, and can't really express themselves is in some way seeing life more clearly and and facing reality uh, more head on than uh, somebody who's not as you know not as anxious as that um, and I don't I just don't agree that that is that that is the case basically I think that he de-emphasizes just like human relationships you know there's his movies kind of have a lot of like uh like the impossibility of forming real connections with other people and i think that it's although there is some truth here like in that right like i think there is definitely something to the fact that like um yeah people put up fronts and they put up personas that don't necessarily reflect who they are inside and that like you act in a way every day you're kind of putting on a little performance and then maybe you know in your head you're feeling completely differently or you have all these fears that you don't express and like you know that all that is perfectly uh true and valid but i think the thing that i disagree about is is this sense that he is a little i there's a, some cynicism about just like people's fumbling and unsuccessful efforts to connect with one another which i think are absolutely as true and as real as any other aspect of the human experience and as valid you know and that like even when people can't communicate well or don't wear their heart on their sleeve or you know whatever all of the kind of messy stuff that just goes on in social reality how we deal with others yeah. is nevertheless as true and as real as you know our internal lives so so that's that's one thing like i just find that it's <laughs> i don't want to sound too sort of haughty and dismissive of kaufman but if I was to, <laughs> if I was to, I just think that there is an element of just pure angst about it. You know, in Annie Hall, when he's a kid and uh, there's this flashback to him seeing a um, a child psychologist and the mother yeah. is like, oh, he won't do his homework because he just learned the universe is going to end, you know, one day or whatever. Yeah, yeah. He's been depressed. All of a sudden he can't do anything. Why are you depressed, Alvy? Tell Dr. Flicker. It's something he read. Something you read, huh? The universe is expanding. The universe is expanding? Well, the universe is everything. And if it's expanding, someday it will break apart and that will be the end of everything. What is that your business? He stopped doing his homework. What's the point? What has the universe got to do with it? You're here in Brooklyn. Brooklyn is not expanding. It won't be expanding for billions of years yet, Alvy. And we've got to try and enjoy ourselves why we're here huh? Huh? <laughs> that kind of basic neurosis i think is being expressed by some of charlie kaufman's movies and just being neurotic is not is not profound you know yeah my wariness with him is that i feel that it is reaching towards some some uh essential truth about the human experience which it's maybe just the fact that he is an anxious and neurotic person you know like mm. And that that's that is kind of more what is happening than that he is grasped at something that everyone else is kidding themselves about because they you know just they're cons- they're consumers or they're superficial or whatever. So there's that. The other thing is the, the way this worldview comes across in his movies. I feel a little bit like I'm being preached to. Like this, I think uh, you've seen it more recently than me, but I remember <laughs> having this feeling watching Synecdoche, New York, as well. That like. Like as this careens towards the end, that film, they start like he has this like voice speaking to him in his ear, right? And it's basically just telling him about life, the universe, and everything. And like there is a similar bit in uh, um, I'm thinking of ending things as well. There's a couple of these like universal voices expressing truths Um, that comes out of the animated pig. (laughs) I don't know if that's a spoiler, but like I, I, I just I feel that um it's a little uh yeah it's just a little preachy you know it's a little like i'm just getting a lecture about uh about how the world works rather than you know just a a presentation of people figuring their shit out and that i'm i bounce off that a bit just because i don't i'm not sure i agree with with what he's saying and that getting it that way kind of is a little it's just almost pompous you know uh it's just a bit too um bit too grandiose um and there in in this movie in particular as well there's just a lot of like name drops and cultural references which felt 
a little bit like I was just reading a blog, you know, I felt like I was just getting this litany of, you know, now they're going to talk about David Foster Wallace, like now they're going to do a long bit, which is kind of, he's doing an impersonation of Pauline Kale or something, which you've picked up on because she was on the bookshelf in the room or whatever. And it's just this kind of jammed in bunch of uh, references to other things, which layer the movie up with cultural, pop cultural complexity um, but that I found slightly grating because uh, the scenes were so long and the, <laughs> it wasn't, the plot wasn't doing anything. You know, it was just like, it was a little bit of um, uh, uh, just some sort of novelistic flourishes, you know, like like the way that every other chapter in American Psycho is this digression on 80s pop music, which like somehow makes it more deep or whatever. I found that this was, I just, you know, that stuff was a bit annoying. Um, and then finally, the other thing that uh, I didn't care for in this movie which i think makes it probably significantly worse than um anomalisa or synecdoche new york is that it definitely does have this horror element but i found it to be quite half-baked um and i was like googling i just was quickly googling it afterwards and that the the wikipedia article about the novel that it's based on describes it as like a psychological horror or something i'm sandra and i'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use linkedin jobs linkedin has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me in a given month over 70 percent of linkedin users don't visit other leading job sites so if you're not looking on linkedin you'll miss out on great candidates like sandra start hiring professionals like a professional Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And um, there are horror, there are clear horror elements uh, in the film. There's a basement that you're not supposed to go into, a uh, classic uh, horror cliche. And the whole creepy family angle uh, was a little bit like, um, it's like a razor head, had a bit of a razor head element sure. to it with the weird family dinner and also um hereditary yeah hereditary yeah like kind of i know that it's not it's obviously not riffing on hereditary but i'm just saying that kind of creepy family thing um definitely felt like it was coming from the realm of horror and then you know there were other bits as well the bit with the ice cream um that was very uh, lynchy in the sort of 50s americana i know i feel sometimes it's a bit corny just to say that anything is a bit surreal as lynchian but i did feel like it was a bit like david no no i think that's like a direct it yeah, feels like he's yeah, watched yeah, yeah. all those movies. Right. And but I, I I just don't feel that that is where Kaufman's strengths as a director lie and that like the the horror stuff didn't really wasn't that scary and it just felt a bit like he was fulfilling a, a a need in the story to make this be a bit like a horror but that it wasn't that effective and that David Thewlis and Tony Collette who were both absolutely fantastic actors were doing pretty panto performances i thought like really like laying it on thick like i think some of his david hughes's line readings was pretty special like i mean they were very they were quite funny like yeah and effective in a certain way but very just kind of silly like you know and i i don't i don't know if it was landing in exactly the way it was supposed to in that it it was kind of moving beyond the realm of uncanny and a bit off kilter and weird into like i'm a crazy parent like uh it was a it was very yeah that was very unsubtle um so i didn't i didn't think that stuff worked quite as well um i wouldn't i don't know if i would say that the film was bad but uh and it had some like quite creative elements and and i think that that kind of sort of puzzle element to it that you describe where there's a lot of things in it that are kind of clues to what is really going on that you can unpack as you watch it and then at the end you can piece it all together that is certainly satisfying and uh um yeah it was you know interesting and creative in in certain ways but i do think it was a little self-indulgent like and i don't i just don't think it needed to have like fully 20 minute long scenes of them chatting in the car about kind of nothing like that's you know i'm here for some stuff but that's that's too (laughs) much too, too much for me too much for me so um yeah, I don't think it was that great, and I don't love his whole deal. So that's why that was that's why I didn't. That's why I'm deleting it off Netflix. I'm removing it from my watch list. I don't know. What do you think? Like, I was, I, I, I struggle to tell how much of this is just a personal reaction sure. to what I feel is in the work, or, or whether all that stuff about um, 
his uh, general philosophy is is fully in there. Well, should we should we go into a, like a spoiler? I feel like yeah, sure. Let's have a let's have a little spoiler chat. Spoiler alert! Spoiler! Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Spoilers! So, like in my sort of like you know YouTube Kaufman explained take on the movie was that it was leave if you've not seen the film. Uh, it was all in Jesse Plemons' character's head. And I sort yeah. of viewed the film as like him as an old man working as a caretaker, sort of revisiting what he viewed as like a sort of turning point in his life when his girlfriend left him. And, you know, she must have dumped him on that evening and he must have realized, oh, she was thinking of dumping me the whole time. She was thinking of ending things. And so, and then the bit with the parents is like, you see them on that night, but also they age to their death. So you imagine he must have spent time with his parents and you was just basically... Uh, in his head as like as he's kind of ventriloquizing Jesse Buckley's character and he's like how would it have been different or like and sort of melding what you imagine was a real person with like a sort of idolized version of a girlfriend like her profession changes constantly she's a you know a scientist an artist she's like you know the perfect woman in terms of like you know uh, her credentials but I thought what was interesting about the Pauline Kale thing was like how much because I feel I'm often just like the last 10 tweets I read, you know, like uh, the way you sort of just you take someone else's opinion and take it and put it, push it forward as your own. Like, you know, I don't have to think about this movie anymore because whoever Wesley Morris read this review and I basically agree with it. And I'll just take that as my own opinion from now on. And I just, and I thought that that is like genuinely like quite unique. The idea of like just a movie, which is entirely somebody recalibrating uh, their memory and I just like once I kind of figured that out, and like like you said, they've got this kind of clue aspect of like, oh, okay. So when he mentions all the musicals, it's because he's a caretaker and he's viewed all these musicals. And I thought the end was like, like genuinely quite poignant, like quite sad. It's like the end was like also the end of a beautiful mind, which was quite funny. But the idea that like he just wanted to be like a star for the night, and he wanted everyone to applaud him, and it's just very tragic. But I don't know, I feel like I've I've had those thoughts about like not like not that I'm a depressed suicidal caretaker or anything, but like you know, at times where I felt like, oh I've you know, I said the wrong thing and you like revisit like a memory and you just like what if I said this instead? Like what if I was actually also a famous actor? That would be good. Or like, you know, that kind of collision of daydream and memory. Uh that that just the concept I thought was kind of brilliant. And I agree that it's a bit overlong. As for the horror stuff, like, I'm not sure, like, how much he was going for it. Because it's too, kind of, like, the base level of reality is too weird for it to, like, anything to land. You know, like, when they all start aging backwards and forwards, I'm not sure if you're supposed to find that horrific or just more, like, weird and a bit sad. Like, I think that stuff is supposed to be weird and a bit sad, but then also, like, things like the... um you know the the creepy basement or there are spooky elements like the lynchian encounter at the ice cream thing i think there are definitely elements of horror there yeah but i don't know if that how much of that is just like just a sort of baggage of it i don't know like you know i don't know I, i quibble whether like you're supposed to be find it scary or whether it's just using iconography from a horror film maybe i'll revisit some five years and i'll be like i won't enjoy it as much but when you realize what the film's doing, I was like, oh, okay. And I get, like, I got it. And then I was kind of impressed by just the the boldness of the conceit, which isn't Charlie Kaufman's idea. So maybe I should be attributing it to Ian Reid. But... This is something where I did, to piece it fully together, I did have I did have to read the Wikipedia article for what the novel was about. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, once you sort of clock that, uh, the Jesse Plemons character is kind of real and uh, Jesse Buckley's character um, is not. It makes a lot of sense, especially the fact that she has, doesn't have the same name ever and that they the story of how they met is also constantly changing. And, you know, whereas the stuff with him is much more fixed. I think that there is a cost to con- that comes with that conceit, which is you get a, there is a cleverness to it, but it also means that the inner psychology of Jesse Buckley's character, yeah, which you have at some, in some way been following and been invested in because she's much more the kind of um, eyes and ears of the audience than he is. She's doing the voiceover. She's kind of the protagonist and 
she reacts in a confused way to the to how reality changes she actually seems much more tethered to the in, inner dramatic coherence of the world even though sometimes she isn't because like her clothes change she doesn't remark on it the parents ages change and she doesn't make any you know she doesn't make any comment on that but then there are other things where things change and she does make a comment on it and does find that strange so but of, of all the characters she's the one who's existing most within the world of the film and not outside it and then once you learn that she's not really real it's a bit of a kind of it's like oh well did so i wasn't even supposed to give a shit what she was thinking because she doesn't even exist because she's just a projection of his own insecurities about women or yeah you know, I, I think that I find that a little, I find that kind of stuff like a little dissatisfying. No, no, no. I totally get that. That's like, yeah. The reveal is like, it's another film about a sad man who's yeah. can't get laid. Oh, you thought he made, <laughs> oh, you thought he was going to make a movie about a sad woman this time. No, no. no like, the, the trailer made you think he was, he was a film about a sad woman. Yeah. Well, I'm afraid not. I'm afraid not. <laughs> In this sort of Fantasia dance sequence, followed by an, like a full song, a beginning to end entire song, and everyone's in kabuki makeup. I was a little, <laughs> you know, I was a little like, okay. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah. Okay. I, I, okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. The so- this ends with a song and a dance. I mean, once things go, it's a bit like you have to ramp up the surrealness, and then once it's gone full surreal, then... There's, uh, there is going to be an American in Paris style gigantic long dance. Like, you know, we, we have to get there. Um, yeah, no, I, c- I can definitely see what you're saying. This is definitely a your mileage may vary type movie, I think. And if it uh, connects with you, then uh, or, you know, with anybody, then that's then that's great. Um, <laughs> but uh, it didn't it didn't uh, it didn't entirely it didn't entirely do it um, do it for me. And maybe maybe Kaufman is just one of those people who um could maybe he could just use being paired with a um uh someone who i don't know is great at making nike adverts like spike jones or like well maybe th- maybe this is quirky, it right and an ultra ultra quirky kind of fun other music video director in the form of uh michelle gondry you know well like yeah his last three films are definitely like this man has like had no collaborator <laughs> like he's been left to his own devices and that's what all the movies are about in a way yeah i think I might just be repeating myself, but it's like it's almost like the movie is uh, is like what happened. There's like there was a big story about this guy's life, and the movie is like a sort of series of clues as to what it was, which I think is like quite interesting. Like it's almost like you're what you're just seeing the impression of something, and there's like a massive epic fifty year television series that you didn't see, and it's like you're watching this little glimpse of it, which maybe yeah. is just like a trick. But I think it worked. Was that's what the thing I liked most about it. And yeah, I share your reservations for the length and some of the other. Elements. It might it might work better as a play, honestly. Yeah. It felt a lot like a play. Yeah. And pretty much everything in the movie could it be done as a play, not really losing anything on a visual level. Long chatty scenes sitting in a car is just much more tolerable in uh, on stage, I think, than. Um, uh you know then it is like a bit tiring to uh, to see on screen but yeah i mean this is definitely one where i'd be interested to to know what other people uh what other people thought about it if anyone wants to get jump in on the uh kaufman is a, is a bit annoying bandwagon <laughs> you know n- now's now's the time now's the time to join it i don't know how reaction they, this movie's been very well reviewed right does it count as a hot take to 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 think that um uh, it's a bit shit <laughs> no you know, it was a hot take. Well, Mark Kermode gave like a sort of middling review of Sinet to New York, and he. Um, well, Kermode doesn't like him because he was. Uh, they, they've got a feud or something. Well, this he? was this is how the feud started. He gave like a sort of. He's called like Synetic New York like a sort of ambitious failure, and then like ten years later, like Charlie Kaufman wrote like in his book and kinds like there's a book called I Mark Kermode I'm an asshole. So he seems like quite capricious. So you're that's very fun. That is very funny to be fair. It makes Kaufman seem extremely petty. Yeah. So <laughs> he might get wind of this review, and then you know, twenty years from now, in like Ant Kind mm-hmm. Two, you might get a might get a name check. Enough now, back to film chat. 
Have you seen that dogging documentary on Channel 4? I have not seen the dogging documentary on Channel 4, no. <laughs> Mate, I only, I watched this a few weeks ago. It like, I think it caused like a bit of a stir on Twitter when it aired like a couple of years ago. And then like Twitter was like, oh my God, they're re-showing the dogging documentary on Channel 4. It's all on 4OD. It's like this 50 minute film about a group of doggers. And it is, it's, it's an interesting watch. The thing that's quite funny about it is that the director has clearly decided to go for this sort of poetic, arty style where, like, everyone who's interviewed is wearing animal masks. It's got a weird kind of, like, uh, like Brian Eno uh, you know, soundtrack of, like, synthy uh, soundscapes. And it's shot with, like, this sort of... You, everything's about out of focus or, like, you know, they shoot the, like, raindrops in a cobweb in, like, a you know forest where people have, like, fucked strangers the night before... Uh, but at the same, ridiculous. yeah, it's absolutely ridiculous. And at the same time, there's like a very funny. Uh, I mean, this is someone's life, so but like sort of set of characters where this guy whose like wife wants to try it. He's clean all that into it. This guy called Terry, and it just seems like a man who wants to have a monogamous relationship, but is sort of going along with having a you know crazy out there sexual experience. And it's just quite amusing. Like I think like the the show starts to like sets itself out, you know, so it presents itself as taking it very seriously. What is it? What is the life of a dogger like? And then it becomes like a bit of a comedy. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I think you got to see it. It's, it's, it's a great watch. Strong recommendation for the dogging documentary. I mean, it's a bit like that Mitchell Webb sketch, like the boy with the arse for the, for a face, like where it presents itself as some sort of serious documentary, but it's totally like just titillation and voyeurism, which is maybe yeah, yeah, per- yeah. perhaps fitting given it's about dogging. So it's sort of, you know, fitting with the theme. But um, yeah, I would recommend that. Smash through the Sopranos, The Wire, Mad Men, and then just give that a uh, dogging documentary a watch. Those, those are the best shows I've ever made. Does that just tip off the themes of all of those other television programs? Yeah. It draws feel... them all together into one. Yeah. The cut to black at the end of the dogging documentary was like, I don't know what, I just went to the internet, the forums were lighting up. Incredible. What about yourself? Have you seen any like pr- proper shows of... Isn't about doing or uh, not watch too much proper TV. Uh, watch a little bit of the um, second series of Umbrella Academy. Um, my my review of this is uh, very Netflixy. Does that thing of uh, one or two sort of quite thought out good episodes followed by a lot of um, uh, treading water, which is just uh, challenging you to get bored enough to turn it off, <laughs> enough to tread that line. Um, the main issue with the Umbrella Academy it has a lot of strengths, I think. And it's really hamstrung by what seems to be a contractual obligation to include a fun, rocky, poppy needle drop like every 15 to 20 minutes in order to just suck any perspective tension that there might be out of like any fight or chase scene. Right. So like anytime there's an action, they telegraph it in advance by having some cool bass or guitar riff kick in. And then when it's actually ongoing, it's just like uh, bopping along and they're kind of jumping around. And there is never any sense. Uh, there's no suspense. It just kills. It just kills it. You know, like you can do that once or twice and it's fun and cool. But doing it every time is just uh, really makes the show boring. Um, so uh, I I do. I like it in certain respects. It's kind of a retread, but they've put it in the 60s. So at least the costumes are dramatically different. Um, it's got that going for it. It's a fun period <laughs> flavor. But um, definitely kind of mediocre. I also rewatched. Um, I know didn't rewatch. Watched for the first time. David Fincher's Zodiac. Oh, cool! Do you like um, it? Yeah, really liked it. Thought it was. Thought it was excellent. Uh, Fincher, just a really good director. Hey, just, <laughs> just, just say excellent. It. Just got. Just got to say it. I think. I think Fincher is top notch, and uh, Zodiac is. Uh, yeah, um, it's really good. It's a. It's an interesting kind of. Um, amalgam of a uh, newspaper drama and like a police procedural um it has a little bit of the weakness that you you get with like based on a true story thing where it's just messy in the way that real life is takes place over decades whereas the fictional version would only take place over like maybe one year and it just makes a little sprawling and without focus in some respects i watched it in two parts watching that episodic way doesn't seem bad since it has some pretty clear moments of pause where it kind of yeah. breaks off and then starts back up again uh, and it is a somewhat episodic film uh, but great just like incredibly uh, richly recreated period I thought 
seemed like a, a unnecessary amount of like scenes set outdoors with like huge amounts of period cars or like one-off scenes in shops that are fully dressed you know and yeah. i don't know it just it just seemed to have this sort of limitless budget for what is a not especially spectacular film in that it's mostly just dialogue like there's basically no action in it whatsoever but it really takes a long kind of enjoyable it's sort of uh uh, gets along on its like lack of like um, serial killer movie excitement by just having a very almost Sorkin-esque kind of uh, uh, I want to I say whip fire that's not a word whip, whip pan whip firing whip wisecracking dialogue they're just uh, yeah that everyone's talking back and forth all the time and there's constant banter um, and because all the actors in it are very charming that that uh, that works pretty well and it has the a satisfying um like eye for detail that you want from one of these kinds of movies where they've obviously done a ton of research and um just a lot of them pouring over the little facts of the case and piecing things together is uh, kind of very enjoyable in, in a procedural way it's sort of like an obsessive making a film about an obs- obsessive feels like yes exactly like, like the movie is very if, obsessively yeah. made and yeah exactly yeah it is as obsessive as um jay Hall's character is i, so, I remember yeah, reading I like i watched it a few years ago reading this sort of like positive but quite snarky review where he said like as the movie goes on the less in- the most interesting characters start to leave it and it just sort of like keeps on going like but it has to for like the ending to work it's like that's what it's about it's like the long journey to like it's because it's not spoiler to say that the zodiac killer was never found but i think i remember thinking the end scene was kind of brilliant like and the needle drop in the last scene is just like so subversive. It's kind of brilliant. One thing that slightly surprised me about it, since I knew going in that they don't catch the Zodiac killer, it's, you know, because that's just what happened historically. Yeah. Um, but just how much focus there was, even towards the end of the movie, on the identity of the killer. I thought it was going to get much more um, like just into the psychology of the... Um, of Jake Gyllenhaal and the people who are obsessed with finding him and Mark Ruffalo and whatever and just their lives and kind of move past that question. But in the end, the movie seems pretty set on who it actually is and that that yeah. is kind of the denouement of the film is identifying the killer even though they're not brought to justice. Um, so, uh, yeah, that was slightly uh, surprising. But, um, oh yeah, one one thing that I that I liked, that I thought it did well, is also something that c- comes up in uh, Mindhunter, which is kind of like the like a not really a sequel but just like a continuation of the themes of zodiac you know like david fincher's tv show um or like he directed some of the episodes of it um on netflix is uh is the way that like serial killers are kind of um hyped up in a way especially ones like this like the he gives a code to the paper and he sends some creepy letters and stuff is that he seems like some sort of genius and like that's what serial killers are usually in movies you know like um uh, mr policeman we gave we gave you all the clues yeah yeah yeah. those types you know they have incredibly complex plans and they're always one step ahead or whatever whereas the reality is seems to be more like the police just aren't always that good at their jobs and miss things and like messes are made and you know they just don't pick up on obvious stuff and then the actual serial killer themselves is just a an enormous narcissist who's a bit sort of i had to fucking call you a bit clownish yeah like um uh and i thought the the film did like a good job of portraying that like he's an enormously creepy and terrifying character but also like a bit silly you know just like he seems like a little bit like a little boy you know yeah um what a loser it's a bit of a loser just a bit uncool you know a bit lame you should great 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 small performance from brian cox as well in that if, you're, if you enjoyed him in Succession, he's really really good in Zodiac in a small role. He's brilliant. You should watch, because they just made it available on Curzon Home Cinema, you should watch Memories of a Murder, because it's got a very... You can tell that David Fincher has seen it. It's like, it predates Zodiac, but it's got similar... There's like similar beats to it in a way which... Not in a sort of copying way, but more like a sort of tipping the hat uh, to Memories of a Murder, which might be oh, cool. the best serial killer drama, I don't know. There's more jokes in it for a start, if that's what you're looking for. It's got that Korean, you know, black humor, turns a slapstick, turns to like existential horror. (laughs) 
Saw Christian Slater at the shops the other day With Jamie Foxx, Chris Cooper and Janelle Monet And the cast of Maid of Honor And the little girl from the fall and Tina Fey They said, Sam, hey, we all love your podcast, it's great. I said, thanks, we shook hands, nodded and parted ways. Why didn't I take a photo? I should have taken a photo. Why didn't I okay. Join us next time. Let's review Enola Holmes. It's like a young girl who's Sherlock Holmes' sister. Can't Why not? I don't think I can watch that. <laughs> Why not? She solves crimes and it's like Mycroft Holmes is like, oh, you're a stupid girl, aren't you? And she's like, no, I'm the, I'm the smartest one of, of you all. But yeah, we'll review some stuff. There's lots of movies coming to Netflix. Like the new David Fincher movie is out soon. About What's the, uh, new, what's the new Fincher? It's called Mank. And it's about uh, Joseph Mankiewicz, the writer of All About Even stuff, and co-writer. This is the movie's about him allegedly writing a lot of Citizen Kane and not getting the credit he deserves. And uh, Gary Oldman's playing Mankiewicz, so quite a cool. quite a sort of caliber thing. Yeah, quite a caliber thing, you know. Good director. Quite a caliber thing. Well, I always think like Gary Oldman is like I've been told he's an amazing actor. And he obviously is, but he like makes a lot of shit. And every once in a while, he works with like a d- good director, and it's like, oh, I get it. Yeah, you're a great actor. And then he's like in the Robocop remake or whatever, and it's just like, sure, you know. So it'd be interesting to see him directed by David Fincher. Like, it's been yeah, ages yeah. since the David Fincher movie. It's like Gone Girl was his last film. So that's like six years ago, seven years ago. Yeah. Fincher is is just is a director who's like great like increased in my estimation over time I think like always been good but uh I really think he's top tier just uh just a top top lad it's just a top he's a top lad can you imagine how lad. unbearable social network would have been if he hadn't directed it oh absolutely <laughs> like, it's like in a fact, masterpiece we don't, we don't in need his, to guess hands. like we we don't need to guess because we have Molly's game yeah it would have been like that oh shit it's we can absolutely absolutely awful we can uh, review the new Sorkin. That's out in a couple of weeks. Um, yeah, the Chicago Seven. Trial of the Chicago Seven. The thing about the thing about this new Sorkin is that at least it is about something important. You know, yeah. it's not about some fucking gambler who's just like doesn't do anything. It's just a sort of rich gambler, and that's the, all the stakes of the film. Um, like at least it is about something important. Say so that the self-important kind of. Uh, whatever killer mockingbird style like trial sequences or the scenes where someone is really laying down the law or whatever at least the people who are preaching and being sassy will be the actual good guys and they will be Mm. you know uh, delivering the the sass to people who are historically bad um so it has that has that going for it although it's it it will be interesting to see how the arch liberal uh, ultra melt aaron sorkin deals with (laughs) um his like actually radical um, uh, protagonists like his, you know, the, the actual communists and socialists yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, who he's writing about. I'm guessing it will end up somewhere like Trombo, where it's, uh, or Trombo rather, where it's like, it ends up being just a free speech issue and, you know, the, the radical politics itself is sidelines slash dismissed. But having said that, we're living in this period of, I mean, obviously this movie has been in production longer than like, you know, the some like past the summer of Black Lives Matter protests and, and whatnot, but we're definitely living in a, in a period in which like the the kind of aesthetics of um, marches and protests are uh, have fully crossed over into like the liberal mainstream. You know, they're like they're not the uh, uh, the the fringe activities of like hippies and radicals, but that are things that like you know everybody went on the women's march or whatever. So. Um, uh, so there's certainly room for a portrayal that like that presents the politics in a um, uh, in a sympathetic way, which is always easier to do with historical stuff than with contemporary stuff, because like with contemporary socialists, you know, they're they're really unpopular because they're too critical of like the existing establishment. But when when you're uh, um, uh, sneering and laughing at a historical establishment, then it's like you're a lot safer of a, of yeah, a, yeah. Of a character. So um 
uh, yeah, I don't know. Probably probably insufferable, but certainly will be um, will be a fun one to check out. All right. Thank you for listening to Film Chat. Danny, thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for, and for letting me join you. You're in charge. <laughs> you're, you are welcome. Uh, and we'll catch you guys next time. All right. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Let's do it. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.